Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyer, your host. We have another remarkable Sunday today in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. It is a Sunday of the Fathers of the First Ecumenical Council, and that occurred in 325 A.D., a long time ago. But we still commemorate, and also we speak of the work of this council, who developed the creed as we know it. But actually, the creed that we say in the liturgy for the Latin Rite Church, they do say it in the, in the Mass as well, but not in every Mass, whereas in the Eastern churches, we say it in every liturgy. This creed developed over time. It would basically start out as the Apostles' Creed. It was the fundamental profession of faith in the early, early church of those who were accepting baptism. And one of the reasons they had people say this creed before they were baptized, which they still do to this day, is because you have to remember the converts were coming from, at that time, Greek-speaking cultures and also from Jewish people. So both of them had to make sure that they believed, they understood the faith that they were coming into when they embraced Christianity. And especially and fundamentally, the belief in a God, one God, but who was three distinct divine persons, equal, one in essence or one in substance, consubstantial, yet different. They never become confused. They always remain distinct persons, yet one God. And you can imagine how difficult that is to try to understand. Even for us today, we cannot fully understand or articulate the mystery of the Trinity, but we certainly know a lot about it as it has been revealed to us. So oftentimes the problem in the other church too was not only God is Trinity, but also the second person of the Trinity in particular. And this was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person who becomes incarnate, which means that this person of Jesus Christ has two natures. So there's a difference between nature and person. Jesus Christ, the person, the second person of the Trinity, has two natures now. He takes on that second nature while still remaining divine. So the question becomes, as you can imagine, especially to newcomers to the faith, those that came from philosophical and pagan backgrounds like the Greek-speaking people, 
and also the Jewish converts who came from a monotheistic faith, you know, believing in one God. But this idea that this transcendent God can at the same time take on human form while remaining God is a very incredible and hard-to-understand concept. And so the heresies, the misunderstandings, the false teachings that occurred in those first several centuries of the church all had to do in one way or another with God as Trinity, and in particular, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son. The Council of Nicaea, I'm going to refer to two wonderful books for your libraries, your personal libraries at home. You should always have either one of these books, especially if you're serious about the Eastern churches, about learning about the Eastern churches. One of those books is called The Liturgical Year of the Byzantine Slavonic Rite. This is by Father Basil Shedigan. We refer to this book often. It comes from the Byzantine Seminary Press, and it's a book about, in, in brief explanations, about the liturgical cycle of the Byzantine church. So for this Sunday, Father Shadegi says this, that this Sunday, the first Nicene Council, the fathers of this council, recalls a victory of the true faith over its enemies and affirms the importance of the first ecumenical council held in Nicaea in 325 AD. The council convened by the first Christian emperor, Constantine the Great, with the sanction of Pope Sylvester I, lasted two months and 12 days. Now, there's something significant in that detail. Notice that a Byzantine emperor could call a church council. You know, that is still the tradition today in the Orthodox churches, that an emperor or someone of that stature has to be the one to call the council. So the emperor called the council. That shows you how close church and state were at that time. The emperor calls the council, but the pope sanctioned it. In fact, as Father Shadegi says here in his book, Hosius, a bishop of Cordova at the time, attended as the Pope's representative. To this council, we owe the Nicene Creed, the defense of the divinity of the Son of God against the heresy of Arius. And also, at this council, was the fixing of the date for Easter. The liturgy lauds the wisdom of the fathers who proclaimed you, preaching that you, O Lord, Son of God, are equal to the Father on the throne and to the Spirit also. Another prayer says this, and this is from the Byzantine liturgical prayer. The foolish Arius divided the headship of the Most Holy Trinity into three dissimilar and alien substances. Wherefore, the God-mantled fathers, having like Elias the Thespite, come together with energy and burning with zeal, did cut off with the sword of the Spirit him who was marked with the shame because of his blasphemous teaching, they being inspired by the Spirit. Pretty graphic, pretty direct language in our liturgical tradition there. We have no use for heretics. One of the reasons why the creed is said at every liturgy and not necessarily at the Mass of the Latin Rite is because, according to one theory, the Latin Rite did not feel as great a need as the East because a lot of these heresies did not originate in the Western lung of the church. They originated in the Eastern lung. In other words, a lot of the councils, the early councils of the church, a lot of these false teachings all came out of the Eastern lung of the church. And so the Eastern churches felt a much more consistent need to have its believers proclaim this faith proclaim the true faith. The creed started out really from the time of the apostles as the 
proclamation of belief of those who were entering the faith, becoming Christian, especially at the time of their baptism. Remember now, we're talking about people are coming from pagan Greek-speaking cultures and also the Jewish culture. So those are the two primary sources of converts at the time. And both of them would have had a hard time with the beliefs of the Christian faith, of a God who is Trinity, you know, monotheistic, one God, yes, but Trinity, three distinct persons, consubstantial, meaning of the same substance, the same essence, you know, composed of the same stuff, to put it very simply, yet distinct. And it's not either or, and this was the problem. How can a God be one and yet three persons? Vice versa, how can three persons be one God? But to make it even more complicated, it was the second person of the Trinity that was most problematic because the second person of the Trinity, who is God, you know, the second person is the Son. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son took on flesh. The Creator becomes the creature while remaining the Creator. How do you reconcile this? How can you reconcile a divine, infinite being so superior, yet lowering himself to become what he was not, while remaining what he is. You can imagine this is difficult. And as time went on, there was a lot more theological speculation about these things. And so the church had to continually define them even more. See, the first creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the first promises and proclamations of faith at baptism, were a little bit more general. They were much more basic. But the need came up when all this theological speculation and this wondering and this conversation about how do we understand this God who is Trinity? How do we understand the second person of the Trinity? When that started to happen, the church saw that, okay, we need to be a little bit more specific. So then what happened was they took the early creed and then they added to it the resolution of the heresy of the Macedonians, which was the denial now of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And this was resolved at the council in 381 AD, and this council was a council of Constantinople. So this is why the creed properly is called the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. So they combine the two councils, the one in 325, the one in 381, and that's the creed that we say today in the liturgy. Now, in this creed, it is one that, of course, articulates the basics of our faith, not every aspect, but basically you can find every aspect of our faith within the creed. But also there's an interesting difference between the way the Eastern churches say the creed and the way that the Latin Rite Church says this creed. And that big difference is a difference what we call the filioque. It's a, it's a Latin word, it's a clause, a phrase in there, which means, and the son. Filioque means, and the son. That was added to the creed in the part that says, where the Holy Spirit proceeded from, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, but the Filioque says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, this was really problematic, and in fact, it contributed to the great schism between East and West. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about this little phrase that ignited a huge schismatic fire in the church. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion and to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church. We need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now 
by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Save, save, save the dates for Prairie Fest, Friday through Sunday, August 10th through the 12th, at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. More info at byzantinecatholic.com. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. It's no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian spirituality and the significance of art in the church. The Tabor Life Institute can arrange for marriage encounters, parish missions, and can help your parish facilitate teen faith formation in either English or Spanish. For Father Loya and other speakers, contact the Tabor Life Institute by writing to taborlife at earthlink.net. That's Tabor spelled T-A-B-O-R life at earthlink.net. Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Hoya, your host. We're talking about the creed, and especially, in particular, just before the break, a particular phrase that ignited a whole schismatic firestorm, which is still a bone of contention today, although not as much as it once was, fortunately. I'm going to refer to yet another book by a great author. He wrote some really classic books on the Eastern churches. They're very thick books, but they're very wonderful books. His name is Father Casimir Kucharik. And the book I'm referring to is the Byzantine Slav Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. It's a wonderful presentation of the history, the why behind why we do what we do in our liturgy. And it's very scholarly, but yet it's very easy to read, relatively speaking, <laughs> as scholarly books go. Yes, there's lots of footnotes, which are interesting and deal with a lot of detail and so on. But basically, it's a very, very fine series. Father Kacharik has written several books, and these were a number of years ago, but they're still classics. The Byzantine Slav Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Most recently, they were put out by Alleluia Press. In the section of his book on the liturgy, he talks about the filioque, which again means, and the Son. The filioque added to the creed, affirming the procession of the Holy Spirit from both the Father and the Son as from one principle, is probably the most controversial phrase in all liturgical history. It was first used in Spain in the 5th and 6th centuries after the conversions of the Goths. From there it spread, but not without difficulties, to the rest of the Western Church. Because of the violent opposition it aroused, Pope Leo III advised its omission, but the practice was retained in the Latin Church. It gained a foothold in Rome itself, probably during the reign of Pope Benedict VIII, when the creed was added to the Roman Mass. From the 11th century on, the filioque is found in every Latin text. The trouble was due not to the doctrine, but to pastoral concern about adding anything to the creed. Prudence dictated its omission in deference to those opposing it, not the least of whom were the Byzantines. Furthermore, the councils of Ephesus, that's in 431 AD, 
and Chalcedon in 451 AD had forbidden the introduction of any other faith or creed and had imposed the penalty of deposition on bishops and clerics and excommunication on monks and laymen for transgressing this law. On the other hand, the decrees of these councils were not intended as limitations imposed upon the ecclesia docians, nor did they prohibit the formulation of the same creed in better words. In Eastern Catholic churches, the filioque may be omitted except when scandal would ensue. Most of the Eastern Catholic churches today do not use the filioque. Even after Phocius, he was from the East, had taken the filioque as an issue to break with Rome, the theological differences could have been adjusted as they were, in fact, at the Council of Florence. And this was in 1438 to 1439 A.D., Some theologians, both Orthodox and Catholic, claim that there is no longer any problem. You see, it's interesting, as Father Kucharik says here, he said that the filioque was added as a reference to the Father being the first principle of procession. I know this starts to get into some pretty heavy theological and philosophical terminology. Basically, we, we might call it the first principle, or from one principle, where the Father and the Son comes from one principle that is like the Father. But the filioque, to the Eastern ear, the filioque sounded like a heresy. It sounded like the Holy Spirit was coming from the Father and Son, as if they were both the same principle, almost like the Holy Spirit was almost like a spiritual or divine child born of the Son. At least this is how it came off to the Easterners. A lot of this has to do with how the different languages, Greek and Latin, understood the word procession. When we say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, or if we say it proceeds from the Father and the Son, a lot of the difficulty comes in when we're trying to understand the word procession to the Greek mind and to the Latin mind. The reason why this probably is not a big principle today, it's not an issue that should divide us. It it did divide us for a long time. As we heard from Father Kucharik, the Eastern leader, Phocius, used that as a real fulcrum to drive a wedge between East and West and eventually led to the schism between both in 1054 AD, a schism that we're suffering from to this day. But it really should not be a fulcrum. It should not be used to leverage a schism, even to this day. And here's one of the reasons why. If you take the creed from the Eastern point of view, we'll say that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father. But then the next line of the creed, we say, together with the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is glorified. So there's a reassurance that all three are equal and are all three are worshipped as equal, yet as one God. See, the reason why the West, especially starting in Spain, began to insert the creed, and eventually Charlemagne, you know, the great emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, really pressed for it. The reason why that happened in the West was because they were trying to battle the Arian heresy, which started in the East and spread to the West. That heresy was the denial of basically the divinity of Christ. Because to make a very complex theological argument, brief, hopefully. Basically, Arius was saying, well, how could the divine lower itself and become human? It would have to be less than divine for that to happen. There was something to that effect, in a sense. I'm trying to make it simple. 
But there were other heresies that kind of reversed it, that Jesus was not a distinct human nature, that his human nature was sort of subsumed into his divinity. So he basically ends up with one nature again. See, he's one person, but two natures. He's not just divine. He's not just human. And one does not conflict or subsume or diminish the other. This is the reality of the incarnation, that God, the creator, became the creature while remaining the creator. In other words, as the Byzantine fathers say, God became that which he was not while remaining that which he always and ever will be. He was divine, he is God, but he took on that human nature. So he is both God and man. This is the person of Jesus Christ, and this was the heresy that was constantly being battled over for so many centuries. And if you look carefully, even at recent history, I always like to say that heresies, although they're defeated officially, they get recycled. They kind of raise their ugly heads, and they're maybe called different things, but and they manifest themselves in different ways, which aren't necessarily heresies as in terms of actual beliefs where someone is saying, well, this is what we believe. It's more or less an attitude or a practice. For example, there's a tendency today in our world to again, diminish the divinity of Christ. We sort of take him almost like a, oftentimes a friend, we reduce him down, the way he's portrayed sometimes in certain movies and plays, or the way he's just referred to, or even our attitude towards church. You know, when we have a casual, a cavalier attitude towards church, especially the Eucharist and the presence of the Eucharist, that's actually a way of recycling the air in heresies, because we're not really looking at what's there, which is Jesus Christ, his body, as the church or his body in the Eucharist, we're not really looking at it in the reverential way we ought to because we're not really seeing it, regarding it as divine, human and divine. If you know that something is divine, even though it's real to you, it's tangible, it's physical, it's taken on physical form as God, the second person of the Trinity did, if you know that, you're still going to offer great reverence and deference to that divine, that divine presence manifested in the physical. But what we have today is we have a lot of casualness towards church, towards God, towards Eucharist. That's a recycling of the Aryan heresy. Other faiths, such as Islam, was a denial of the divinity of Christ. Islam believes that Christ was a great prophet. They acknowledge he was a great man, but not the Son of God. And whenever we deny that, it's key. There's a key reason why this cannot be denied. And this is why these councils are so revered in the church. Because to deny any part of one aspect of our faith is ultimately to deny everything, to change everything, to diminish everything. It has a ripple effect through everything that we believe, see, talk about, live. So the heresies that were defeated and defeated by great theologians and saints, these heresies which get recycled have to be noticed. We have to be able to recognize when we are recycling these heresies by our attitudes and behaviors. It's also why we have so much reverence and deference to the great fathers of these councils of church history, as we do today on the Sunday of the Fathers of the First Ecumenical Council of Nicaea. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. 
Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Bishop Robert Barron thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!